Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Rates of colorectal cancer have been rising in young people over the past decade. And I remember back in the day, somebody being diagnosed in their 30s, and I was, you know, everybody was quite shocked. It was a travesty, and it was something that was just not heard of. It's Tuesday, February 13th, but just like every day, today is Science Friday. I'm Sci-Fi producer Kathleen Davis. It used to be that cases of colorectal cancer were limited to sedentary, older people with excess weight. But it's more and more common for healthy people in their 40s, 30s, and even 20s to be diagnosed. We'll talk about that story in just a bit. But first, I spoke to Dr. Wei-Keen Vong, who ran possibly one of the cutest studies ever done, teaching AI about language via a camera strapped to a two-year-old. Let's take a listen. There's a lot to learn in the first couple of years of a child's life, not the least of which is how to talk. But little kids don't sit down and just study a vocabulary book. They soak up language from their daily experiences, which are often filled with parents and caregivers asking questions like, do you want some water? Or saying things like, oh, look, a kitty cat. Scientists wondered whether an AI model could learn about language the same way. Not by being fed a curated set of pictures and words or the entire content of the internet, but by eavesdropping on the day-to-day activities of a two-year-old. Dr. Wei-Keen Vong is a research scientist in the Center for Data Science at New York University and one of the authors of a report on that effort recently published in the journal Science. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Vong. Great to speak to you, Kathleen. So you trained your AI model on about 60 hours of video. Where did all that video come from? Yeah, so this video was really the efforts of a number of pioneering developmental psychologists and cognitive scientists who kind of realized that we really needed data that better matched what children really experience to formulate better theories. And so about a decade ago, a number of researchers got together and started coming up with how to gather this data. How could we um, get something that resembled sort of the real experiences of, of a child and produce this sort of a mini camera that they were able to attach to a number of babies' heads and sort of record them uh, over the course of their developing years. Okay, so I'm trying to imagine this for myself. This may be the cutest study ever done. Um, so, I mean, what would it look like if I was looking at this baby with a camera? So the, the initial set of babies wore the camera on a sort of headband or a strap, but a second set of kids uh, whose data is now being collected uh, involves a sort of more sturdy and firm helmet. It looks like a home video. You are seeing these kids playing with their toys. Um, their parents are reading books to them. They're having mealtimes or they're out in the playground on a slide or a swing. 
you're really getting a real sort of first person glimpse at, you know, what the baby is interested in, sort of like on a second to second level, really. It's, it's incredible. Wow. So you fed 60 hours of this, what I would imagine is sort of a stream of consciousness data to this AI model, as you said, which could include things like going to the park or, or talking to a caregiver. What did this model actually learn? Right. So the way the model works is it's trained to learn language by associating what it's seeing with what it's hearing. So in cognitive science, this style of learning is, is not what's known as associative learning because you're learning to associate certain words with certain images or certain objects out there. And we're really the first to sort of apply these kinds of theories to you know this kind of representative subset of what children are seeing and hearing and sort of seeing what it could learn. So what it could learn is basically a number of the uh, sort of earliest object words or nouns that children also display uh, when learning a language. So those are often the first words that children learn to speak. And we wanted to see if we could capture that aspect of learning from this data and this model. Mm -hmm. So what kind of words? I'm imagining like dada or mama or cat or dog, things exactly, like that. Exactly. Yeah. Words like bowl, words like crib or car or chair. Yeah. These objects sort of pop up sort of almost in every video that you see. And so they're the ones that are relatively straightforward to test for as well. Were there any words that were surprisingly hard for this AI to learn? Yeah, I, I think one of the obvious failure modes we saw was that the model just couldn't really acquire the word hand, no matter how we tested it. Hand, like like your hand. Exactly, exactly. And um, what one reason is that hands sort of appear all over the video data set. So, you know, because the kid is manipulating things or playing with things, they always show up in the video, no matter what frame or what words are being spoken. Hmm. And so that is a bit of a challenge with how our model operates. And so we didn't find sort of a consistent learning with that word. Did the AI think that hand meant something else or vice versa? Yeah, exactly. So if you look through the data, uh, which I did quite a lot while working on this study, the word hand really only gets spoken when the child is playing at the beach um, or, <laughs> or, or at the sandpit. And so because of this association between words and objects that is built into our model, the model sort of mistakenly learns to associate the word hand with uh, bits of sand instead. <laughs> um, that is very interesting. There are all sorts of television shows that you know, we here are supposed to be educational for young kids. Do you think that the model may learn more from watching Sesame Street or Peppa Pig than it would from an actual child? That's a fantastic question. I don't know. I do know a number of other researchers from the Netherlands ran a similar study training a similar kind of model, but on episodes from Peppa Pig and showed that oh. it, it was able to learn a similar amount of words as, as our model. Obviously, children start watching television a little bit later in life. Uh, we're primarily interested in language at the sort of very conception, at the very beginning of life, and sort of showing how that emerges from this blooming, buzzing confusion that every newborn is experiencing. I mean, to be clear, we aren't saying that this is necessarily how kids' brains actually work, but just that this approach is enough to, to start to train this AI model. Is that right? That's right. This this work speaks to this uh, larger debate in cognitive science around nature versus nurture, like what um, needs to be built in for humans to learn versus what can we acquire from experience. 
So our model, our work is really focused on that latter aspect where we actually have very few elements or innate components to our model. And much of the learning is really driven by the video data that's being fed into our model. So it, I would say it's something like 5% uh, built-in or innate elements and sort of 95% experience. And um, I, I couldn't give you a range on people's opinions in the field of, you know, what the right split is. But, you know, I hope our work sort of shifts people's minds to realize that experience is really valuable and we don't really need that much built in uh, on top of that. There are parts of language that aren't just the words, but things like tone. Do you think that you could train the AI to understand you know, that it's different for, you know, a calm voice to say, watch out for the dog or a scared voice saying, watch out for that dog. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something in the future we definitely like to try. You know, like I mentioned before, most children's words are these common objects or these concrete nouns, but children also learn words like uh-oh quite early on mm -hmm. in life, right? And, and that- right the tone in which that is spoken sort of indicates they're recognizing something about the situation is surprising or, or a mistake has been made. So I think tone is a, is a huge factor. You know, and another thing that many other researchers have looked into is this notion of child-directed speech and recognizing that the way that we often talk to babies is, you know, different from how we talk to adults. We often accentuate certain right. words or certain phonemes. And, um, you know, other researchers have shown that that also might be a pedagogical strategy to help with learning. Mm -hmm. If you gave this AI model more hours of video to work with, do you think that it would just get better at working with this set of nouns that it learned or would it possibly have a bigger vocabulary? I think the answer is probably both to those. Uh, we see that in children as well. We see that children sort of a little bit after the age of one really show this large comprehension boost in their sort of word recognition abilities. And we hope that our model displays, um, you know, a similar qualitative effect if we were able to feed in more data. Now, that's something we're actually already working on. So um, stay tuned for that. Okay. <laughs> and so far, as you said, you've been pretty focused on these concrete nouns. But I mean, what's next? Do you do like color or verbs? How do you expand this uh, language understanding to the next level? Yeah, absolutely. I think going to verbs, to color words, to adjectives, to prepositions. I mean, we really want and in, in some shape or form to be able to explain all of the different elements of language that children eventually acquire. You know, in this work, we really focused on this multimodal aspect of sort of linking language to, to vision because that is really where children get started. But, um, you know, later on, it seems like children might have other mechanisms available, perhaps similar to the next token prediction objective in language models that might enable sort of acquiring some of these more complex words. I've looked into this question mm -hmm. a little bit for verbs. You know, it's quite funny because if you think if, if a child is learning a word like run, if you look in the videos when the word run is um, spoken, you know, it's because the kid is running and the camera is really just bobbing up and down. So, <laughs> you know, feeding that into the model, it's going to have a very different notion of what running is, I think, to most people. Right. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Dr. Wei Keen Vong is a research scientist in the Center for Data Science at New York University. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for all of your lovely questions, Kathleen. It was great to speak to you. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, 
But more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Medical providers have noticed a strange trend over the past few years. More and more young people are being diagnosed with colorectal cancer. It used to be really rare for anyone under the age of 50 to be diagnosed with colorectal cancer, but practitioners are increasingly seeing people in their 40s, 30s, and even 20s with this type of cancer. So what's driving these cases, and what can people who are concerned about this do? Joining me now to talk about it is my guest, Jennifer Fior, gastroenterology nurse practitioner at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health, based in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to Science Friday, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So nice to have you. So just to be clear, what are we talking about when we say colorectal cancer? So colorectal cancer refers to a cancer of the colon, which is like the large intestine, or the rectum, which is the very end of the colon prior to the anus. Um, So it is a cancer that's present within that area. Mm -hmm. And as far as cancers go, how common is this? So colorectal cancer is becoming an increasing trend. Right now in the United States, colorectal cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in men, the fourth in women, but uh, it is the second most common cause of cancer amongst men and women combined. Wow. So when did it become clear to you as a nurse practitioner that rates of colorectal cancer were rising among young people? If you look at the data, you would actually see that it may suggest that there's been kind of an increase in this um, trend since the mid-90s. In my practice, though, I've kind of seen it pick up over the last seven years or so. Um, Personally, I've been in GI since 2008, and I remember back in the day, it was really rare to have a colorectal cancer in somebody under the age of 50. I do remember somebody being diagnosed in their 30s and I was, you know, everybody was quite shocked. It was a travesty and it was something that was just not heard of. Mm. Um, And I even had a friend who was 38 when he was diagnosed with colon cancer and he was an Asian male in 2015 and that was even a shock to us. Um, But it seems to be coming more and more prevalent over the the last decade or so. And that's even why they've kind of rolled back the colorectal cancer screening guidelines from 50 to 45 more recently. Do we have any firm answers as to why young people are increasingly affected? I think this is a really difficult question to answer. And I would say it's multifactorial. And there's a lot of theories right now, but no definitive one-size-fits-all answer. Um, Most of it kind of comes from our diet and lifestyle, particularly our Westerners lifestyle. We typically have a diet that's really high in processed foods, red meats, high fat foods. Um, Most Americans typically don't get enough fiber, fruits, vegetables, whole grains. I've read one study that showed the average American gets about 10 to 15 grams of fiber per day when the general recommended goal is anywhere from 20 to 35 Um, So that's one reason. Another reason may be some environmental exposures, for example, chemicals, pollutants, or even like pesticides. 
Um, we've also seen an increase in early childhood obesity, especially in the setting of things like technological advances and social media, so like computers, cell phones, things like that, um, which has created some physical inactivity. Uh, additionally, there's some theories to suggest that antibiotic exposure, especially the early onset, like prenatal years and leading up to adolescent period of life, will disrupt the gut microbiota and can make a pro-inflammatory state, which may make you more susceptible to things like colorectal cancers down the line. Of course, there's other environmental exposures, tobacco. I'm sure we all know that that one's not good for us. And then excessive alcohol intake as well. In fact, I just did a TikTok on how um, excessive alcohol intake can disrupt the gut microbiota. So it's you know something to definitely pay attention to. Wow. And it's interesting that you talked about those environmental factors potentially yeah. playing in here. Just last week on the show, we talked to a cancer researcher about, quote unquote, hidden carcinogens like air pollution. I, I want to ask you about the, quote unquote, typical patient for colorectal cancer before, you know, all these young people started getting diagnosed. I mean, who was sort of like, OK, this is sort of a normal patient uh, that, that you would see? I mean, the expectation is always going to be somebody over the age of 50, somebody who typically leads an unhealthy lifestyle. Tobacco, as I mentioned, was a definite risk factor, uh, fairly obese, sedentary lifestyle, just poor diet in general. And that is still a part of this. But there are some things that we're seeing that, you know, may play some other contributing factors where they're having young, healthy patients come in. And that's kind of the more concerning thing, I think, for some, most people. Mm -hmm. So what kind of symptoms should people be looking out for? Oh, that's really important. So at this point, the hard part about colorectal cancer is that sometimes it doesn't rear its head until it's ugly. But with that being said, if you are under the age of 45 and you are not somebody who is quote unquote eligible for screening colonoscopies, the big things to look out for are these red flag symptoms or warning symptoms of change in bowel habits, rectal bleeding. Um, and when I say change in bowel habits, I want to clarify change in bowel habits over like two week period, three week period, four week period, not like I had an episode yesterday and it changed today. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, anemia of unknown causes, especially in somebody who's a non-menstruating uh, person, uh, bloating, unintentional weight loss. These are all signs that you should at least discuss with your primary care doctor or your gastroenterologist if you already have a relationship with them um, for further evaluation. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some like preventative screenings. Are colonoscopies typically covered by insurance? So a screening colonoscopy, meaning I have no symptoms, I am just looking for uh, the possibility of polyps or growths inside the colon that could potentially become a colon cancer or, of course, colon cancers, those are usually covered by insurance companies. Currently, the CDC recommends adults beginning at the age of 45 undergo colon cancer screening tests. Um, this can be done via colonoscopies, um, but that's not the only test to detect um, the possibility of colon cancers. However, it is not only the best at detecting, but preventing colon cancers, and that is the key. Um, so there are some other options for those who are afraid of colonoscopies, such as um, the at-home stool studies, like a fecal occult test, and now they're even coming out with blood DNA tests that might pick up on some detection. With that being said, the diagnostic colonoscopies, however, um, those are the ones where we're performing for not routine screening, meaning I have symptoms like those ones I had just mentioned. So if you're under the age of 45 and you are experiencing these symptoms, it's really important to talk to your doctor as you may still qualify for a colonoscopy. However, the difference is 
This is called a diagnostic colonoscopy. What that means really is based upon billing. A diagnostic colonoscopy is subject to out-of-pocket costs, and this is dependent on the insurance company, your copay, um, you know, what you've already determined for out-of-pocket expenses that year. So it does depend on each individual, but these are not routinely covered by insurance at 100%. Mm-hmm. So what advice do you have for patients who are freaked out about this? Well, there is a decent reason to be aware. I wouldn't say to freak out quite yet. There are some things that we can do to prevent colon cancer, and that's kind of mitigate those risk factors. So the best advice I can give to people is remain healthy overall, keep good gut health. What does that mean, good gut health? I know that's a buzzword for everybody, um, but what I tend to mean with that is make good dietary and lifestyle choices. So high fiber diets, rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and a good way to kind of keep that gut bacteria as diverse as possible is by eating the rainbow, making sure, as I mentioned before, to eliminate tobacco, um, limit alcohol, limit those red meats, high fatty foods, highly processed foods. And of course, you know, make sure you get adequate sleep, try to reduce stress. I know that's tough this day and age. Um, But of course, things like that. And then exercise is also important. And the other thing is avoiding unnecessary medications or supplements. Unfortunately, with this, there's no magic bullet. But one important other thing to know is your family history. Family history plays a large part in this. And um, there has been, you know, an increase in these genetic cancers. Our genes haven't changed, but a lot of the stuff that we do or what's in our environment has been able to turn on those genes. So we've been seeing increase in these hereditary GI cancers such as Lynch syndrome, FAP. Actually, what they determined is those new onset early colorectal cancers, about 20% or a little less than 20% are due to these genetic variants. So it's really important to know your family history. And what I mean by that is family history, first degree relatives is very important, especially if they're diagnosed under the age of 50, um, or if you have multiple first degree relatives, meaning parents, siblings, offspring. And then based on your family history of cancer, as GI professionals, oftentimes we're able to uh, determine if further testing is needing, such as genetic testing or what cancers you might be at risk for. The other thing to know is if your parents or your siblings have colon polyps, especially those advanced colon polyps. The general recommendation is to get a colonoscopy 10 years prior uh, to the onset of their colon polyps, especially if they're advanced. To be clear, an advanced colon polyp is um, not a cancerous polyp, but one that is precancerous and has a higher risk of turning into a colon cancer if left untouched in the colon. There's not as much of a known impact with colon polyps as there is with colon cancers. Um, So it is still important to understand the role of genetics. Um, And of course, it's really complicated. You are active on social media at GutGals with a Z uh, on TikTok and on Instagram. Why was it so important for you to get on social media and start spreading awareness about colorectal cancer and gut health? Well, I realized I am one individual who's only able to see so many people in a day. And this just gave me a broader reach to people. I do it in my free time after work. I don't get paid for it. You know, it is just a way to kind of reach a wider audience and not only talk about colorectal cancer, but talk about other GI diseases, 
you know, digestive health in general to kind of help prepare people to be an advocate for themselves. It's tough to walk into a doctor's appointment and try to advocate for yourself, especially when you don't know the right questions to ask. So this is just kind of a tool that I I would hope that people are able to utilize when they go into their doctor's office. That's why I want people to have an open conversation if they're experiencing these symptoms. And again, I mentioned in my video, if people are finding that they're having a hard time talking to their provider, sometimes advocating for yourself is really important. And having these tools of information and knowledge is also really important to utilize that um, in your self-advocacy. That's all the time that we have for now. I'd like to thank my guest, Jennifer Fior, gastroenterology nurse practitioner at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health based in Seattle. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's all the time that we have for today. A lot of folks helped make the show happen, including Nahima Ahmed, Emma Gomez, Sandy Roberts, Robin Kasmer, and many more. Tomorrow, we'll talk to two journalists who dove into the sounds of space and came away with a new understanding of the universe. But for now, I'm Sci-Fi producer Kathleen Davis. Thanks for listening. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.